0: The data is out there to detect the patterns. And these are the best pattern recognition systems we have in the world. But we need to be able to make sure that the right data gets to them.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to HIMSScast. My name is Mike Milliard, and I'm executive editor of Healthcare IT News, the HIMSS publication. I'm here today with Steve Irvine, who's the founder and CEO of Integrate.ai. And today we're going to talk about how health systems can improve cancer prediction models and data used to train them. Welcome, Steve. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Mike. So as the founder of Integrate.ai, you know, perhaps just tell me a bit about yourself, a bit about the company, and and about what you guys all do there.
0: Integrate.ai is uh, a platform. We've developed a piece of software that enables companies to safely collaborate on analytics and machine learning projects where data is either hard to access or unusable today. So it might be sensitive data, distributed data, it might be in highly regulated industries. And it's essential to being able to deliver breakthrough results in uh, areas like healthcare or uh, financial services, but right now is unusable and therefore we're not seeing progress. And so we like to say that we're helping developers working on the world's most important problems, solve them without compromising the world's most sensitive data. And uh, previous to this, I was uh, executive at uh, one of large tech companies and and had founded two previous technology startups. So very much coming at these problems as a, a technologist
1: and entrepreneur. So, you know, how have machine learning models for, for oncology kind of evolved and, and improved in recent years from your point of view? So it's an interesting story when we think about oncology models.
0: I mean, oncology in general is just such a complex and complicated field. You know, you've got hundreds uh, of different types of cancer and and it could show up differently in, in individuals. And so it's a really tough kind of, um, in a lot of ways, like intractable problem, but one that whose messiness is, is well-suited to machine learning and AI. And so I, I think it's an area where we see a lot of promise. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we're still in the early innings in terms of being able to show real progress in clinical settings uh, of having AI and machine learning models truly kind of take over or be a formative assistant to, um, the clinician. Mm-hmm. That being said, I, I think if you, if you unpack Kind of machine learning models in general. Um, traditionally, there's kind of two different approaches. Usually it's been um, supervised learning, which is pretty straightforward. You, you label the data that you have, and then you train your model on it to be able to understand kind of this image means this label. So it's like you might uh, have mammograms and say, you know, this is a, a cancerous tumor and, and this is not. And then once the model understands from the samples kind of how to see those patterns in the images, then you um, deploy it on images it's never seen before that are not labeled. And it predicts uh, if it's cancerous or not cancerous, as an example. And where we've seen um, the other part of machine learning that everybody's really excited about, but I think is, is harder is unsupervised uh, learning where you don't give the algorithm any labels, you give it a bunch of features. So you say, look at all these mammograms and you figure out the patterns that exist inside of it. And and that's obviously uh, challenging and requires a lot of data, Um, but it's got a lot of promise because it could be really automated and uh, quite seamless in terms of a, a user experience over time. And what we've seen over the last couple of years is really a push towards kind of a hybrid of the two, something called semi-supervised learning, where you actually use a subset of pre-labeled data and unlabeled data for um, in order to kind of closely approximate the way that human pathologists decide on diagnosis today, where you've got, you know, some labeled data like here's uh, tumor width or density, and then you compare that with like unlabeled data, like previous records or health records. And the idea is to to apply these kind of multimodal models over time, such that we can closely approximate the system that works today, just with more accuracy. And that's really kind of the, the potential of machine learning in AI is to be able to say the data is out there to detect the patterns. And these are the best pattern recognition systems we have in the world. But we need to be able to make sure that the right data gets to them and that they can be trusted to give us accurate predictions in order to be able to use them in all the kind of clinical use cases that that we wish to use them today.
1: Right. So even though these models have come a long way and have, have you know, gotten more elegant and, uh, you know, are, are achieving more, they're still not quite performing to their expectations, I suppose. And, you know, I guess the the data, the fundamental kind of must have of, of a good algorithm is is a big reason for that. Is that fair to say? Yeah, data is the, the single biggest problem.
0: I think if you were to think about um, machine learning and AI in kind of two simplistic forms of like there are the algorithms and then there's the data that you need to feed into the algorithms, we're ahead on the algorithms. Yeah. The algorithms exist today to be able to make meaningful progress in a lot of different use cases in healthcare and especially in oncology. You could see the type of models that you would want to deploy. The problem is they're data hungry. They need way more samples in order for us to be able to trust that they're going to be able to um, assess risk or do diagnostics properly. And so it really has become a data problem at this point. It's like, how do we unlock a lot of the data that is available? And actually, it's really interesting. It was at the health conference a couple of weeks ago, uh, Amazon's uh, chief medical officer had a great stat when he was um, talking about his keynote where he said 97% of health data goes unused. Yeah. And it's just a shocking amount of data that is available. And and the answers are in that data. We just got to find a way to be able to unlock it while maintaining the privacy and security standards that are meaningful to people whose scans those are or medical
1: records those are, which obviously is very important. Right. So yeah, it's not a matter of finding the data. The data is everywhere. We're kind of drowning in data. It's just a matter of making it usable, um, which of course is easier said than done. So, you know, from your point of view, uh, what are some of the keys to, to getting that done and, and harnessing that data of all types, you know, structured, unstructured, you know, imaging, blah, blah, blah. You know, how how can we do better with this?
0: We focus in a particular area. So to Integrate AI, our focus is on the data that is already out there, which we see as quality data, where yeah. we can already trust the quality of the data. And actually, in a lot of cases... The collaboration is already established. Like There's a lot of these um, consortia that are out there already where people want to collaborate and want to be able to improve models or use AI and and ML in a bunch of these fields. And the challenge has really been about how do you make that collaboration safe? And that becomes a a big regulatory challenge because you're dealing in a lot of cases with potentially over 100 different regulations around the world from You know, like the healthcare specific, you know, say like HIPAA in the United States, Mm -hmm. you're dealing with privacy legislations like GDPR and its associated um, you know, regulations around the world. You're dealing with data residency issues. So if you want to share data across different jurisdictions, like countries, some countries won't let you move data out of their country or will have very specific regulations on how you can share. And unfortunately, that complexity has pretty much grind a lot of those collaborations to a standstill. So They can collaborate in intention and they could share best practices, but actually having models improve becomes a big challenge. And so what we're trying to focus on and have seen some good success on is how do you meet the conditions that people are worried about? How do you meet the privacy conditions, meet the security conditions, which means you got to keep data where it is in its own secure location. You can't move it around liberally the way that it's moved around today. You have to be able to make sure that you're really clear on the job that you want to do on that data. Because too often we think about data um, out of context of the job that you want to do on that data. And whenever you're dealing with sensitive data and you talk about, hey, we want to put some governance on this data, who can use it and how can you use it? It ends up being this multi-year affair that never gets resolved. Because quite frankly, there's particular answers that you're comfortable with people getting from that data under particular conditions. And for a lot of those, you're not comfortable. And so it's really about how do we unlock those data collaborations, where the quality data exists. That's kind of number one. That's like immediate returns that we can see if we can deal with the privacy and security issues around collaborating at the intelligence level. The second piece is around standards and around making sure that we um, generally focus on improving the quality of data systemically. And there's a lot of work that the big cloud providers are doing that a lot of the um, you know, the health tech companies are working on to be able to create standards, to utilize those standards, to be able to make sure that data is captured and accessible. And I think that that, over time, is going to be the groundswell of, of effort. But right now, I think the, the data exists to make the meaningful changes. We just need access to it.
1: So you know everything we've been talking about is this related to this concept of federated learning and 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 for those who may not be familiar you know what is federated learning
0: yeah so federated learning is one we we talked before about meeting conditions to enable this kind of collaboration mm-hmm. one of the main conditions for most people is that they don't want to actually share data when you start to share data especially when you move that data from one you know say hospital network to another or across a geographic boundary You introduce a lot of risk, security risk, there's a lot of legislative risk. And so what we want to do with with federated learning is federated learning is essentially a machine learning technique where uh, unlike traditional machine learning, where you need to centralize all the data and then run or train your machine learning model on top of that centralized data, federated learning essentially flips that paradigm. Instead of moving the data, you move the models So you take a copy of the model, you move it to all the locations where the data exists so that you don't need to move any data from its secure location. You train a copy of that model in each of those locations. And then all you need to share is updates of that model to to essentially average what you're seeing across those different locations in different ways. And you get the output, which is essentially a very similar performance to a global model that is trained locally. Mm -hmm. But it never needs to move the data in order to be able to achieve it. And so it it allows you to do some really um, innovative work without having to expose yourself to a lot of the risks that are preventing those collaborations from happening today, which is sharing data or giving people raw access to see and own the data. You leave it with the custodians and you just essentially ask them, are you okay with me training on this part of your data to answer this question in this model? And they have an ability to be able to say yes or no to that specific contextual request, as opposed to, can I have your data? Which the answer to a lot is going to be no, because it introduces an infinite amount of risk that I'm unwilling to accept,
1: especially when that data is private health information. So how common is that approach these days? And and how close are we to having it become more of the standard when it comes to deploying these models, developing these models? It is uncommon, but moving quickly. Mm -hmm.
0: So, you know, the the way you would interact with federated learning models today would be probably more day-to-day on your phone. So it is used by Google and Amazon and Apple to be able to, when you speak into your phone, you speak into Siri. Right. um, What they do is they use federated learning to make sure that your whole kind of audio recording there doesn't have to go to a central cloud. It can actually stay on your phone you can train the model on your phone and then it could just average it with everybody else's phone to be able to make it more responsive or better. Same thing when, when you type and it, it auto-corrects on your phone. Mm-hmm. Same idea, they use federated learning to keep the raw texting on your phone while still giving you the benefit of the learning that they get from all their customers. So we, we've seen the technology deployed to massive scale on those sensitive, but probably a little bit more benign use cases and now, what we're starting to see is, if you go to any of the the big, um, you know, health conferences, and I think you know you guys are, are covering this as well. I think we're starting to see that we just need different, like fundamentally different approaches to enable kind of analytics and machine learning to be as pervasive and as high impact as it has the potential to be in healthcare. And what that means, especially in areas like oncology, is there's already enough challenges. Yeah, <laughs> let's. You know what I mean? Like, like cancer in and of itself is already super complex. It's very difficult to be able to to, to show progress. There's a lot of people, well intentioned, that are doing great research in this area. Mm-hmm. Let's make sure they're not getting stuck in the blocking and tackling. We we should be able to say if all we need to do is change the way that a machine learning model gets executed, in order to be able to unlock a lot of really relevant data and keep people safe at the same time as enabling researchers to be able to advance you know, risk scoring and diagnostics in, or, or drug discovery in some of these key areas, we have to be able to focus on making that possible. And then we'll see this explosion of um, you know, research results, innovation coming into the clinical setting. But at, at, at the beginning, we got to solve it at a minimum for researchers so that they can do these experiments and see if these models are ready for prime time. And I, I'd say that's where we are so the forward leaning, um, uh, the, the forward leaning organizations are all over this, and we're seeing a lot of uptake on our platform and similar platforms. But I would say in, in
1: the you know in the mainstream, we're still we're still early on this journey. Yeah, that was my next approach. Uh, my, my next question, you know, to ask about some of the challenges inherent in this, and you know. Are, are most providers eventually going to be equipped to use this approach, or is it just going to be kind of the province of academic medical centers and other, you know, really well-resourced health systems?
0: The good news on this one is it really is uh, a democratizing force. We're, we're solving this problem at a pretty low level. You know, we're, we're changing the way that jobs get executed such that you can allow more people to participate. And so, I don't think it's going to be one of those that is uh, exclusive to kind of elite organizations with a, a ton of talent and and resources. This should open the door for a, a lot of participation and and more uh, companies to participate, more organizations to participate, um, more professionals to participate. The the big challenge at this point really is just making sure that we can get. I, I think we're at the stage in the industry now where. We're, we're seeing the results of doing this, and we just need to make sure that the education follows. Because I think when it gets deployed, we're seeing meaningful improvement in terms of the availability of data, and we're seeing it happen with a bunch of these bigger consortium. So you can kind of see when they collaborate, now all of a sudden, these use cases that they weren't able to attack before – you're, you're able to 10x, 100x the amount of samples that are available to the research. And lo and behold, you see 30%, 40%, 50% boost in, in accuracy of these models or, um, you know, really meaningful step change differences that might make the difference between them being viable or not in a lot of these real world use cases. But we need to be able to make sure that everybody understands these tools are available to them and then onboard them so that they can take advantage. And I think that's the stage that we're at right now. When they're utilized, they're performing extremely well. But I would say it's new. And so we need to get it in the hands of, of um, more people in order to be able to, to kind of reap the benefits and, and prove these
1: results in real-world settings. All right. So as we look ahead, you know, we're entering into 2023 where we always do the kind of, you know, predictions and, and previews as, as we look forward how do you see these approaches to predictive you know models you know changing and evolving in the in the years ahead What i hope would happen and i guess we're you
0: know by by being founder and ceo of this company i guess i'm betting with my time and my personal capital um, that this is the place that 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 it's going to happen is I, I think we have to solve the data challenge and we can unlock a lot of untapped potential that already exists in um, the machine learning and AI world. The, the models are good enough today. A lot of the, the research models that we see, a lot of the papers that you would see, there's a whole dedicated area at the biggest machine learning conference this year, a full day on federated learning and these new privacy enhancing approaches. We just saw the UN kind of set up their own, um, you know, privacy enhancing technology lab, Mm-hmm. Because they they know that this, these kind of new approaches are going to unlock a lot of the gray area, you know, where there's really sensitive data that we have to handle with care, but is is essential to training on if we want these machine learning models to see enough samples. So I think step one is we'll see a, a big um, improvement in the quality of um, output without having to change the algorithms solely based on access to data. And then the next challenge that I think we're going to talk a lot about is health equity. It's about making sure that not only are we solving getting enough samples, but we're making sure that those samples are representative. And that's one of the big opportunities with unlocking more data as well, is it means that you can collaborate more cross-country, cross-jurisdiction. You can start to get a lot more representation in the healthcare system and that is the biggest problem that we run into systemically this is not even a machine learning problem this is a healthcare problem as you know it's just we we we're seeing again and again whenever we do make progress we're we're making progress specifically off the back of the people that we see in these studies and for machine learning it's no different i mean these models train on the data they see so if they see scans you know mammogram scans from all white women and then you put them in an environment where you've got to generalize that to a black woman that comes in, we're seeing in those cases, they underperform. Yeah. And it's not because the algorithm is not um, equipped. It's because the data that it's being fed is not representative and therefore it can't generalize to uh, different populations. And so I think step one is let's make sure that we break down the barriers so more collaboration can happen. And then step two is let's be intentional about the collaboration that we want to see happen, which is where are the samples that we need to create these kind of diverse um, input sets such that we can trust when we, we set these models out and they, they're there to calculate a risk score that they can be generalized uh, fairly and equitably to all the populations that we care to serve. And that's our intention. We hope to play a small part in that in, in a great AI. But I really do think that this is where we're seeing a convergence in the health tech ecosystem right now. And so I'm really excited about where, where that goes in the next couple of years.
1: I think you're right to be excited. There's a lot going on, and uh, I think we're getting close to kind of solving some of these foundational challenges uh, with with AI, AI and machine learning. Uh, well, Steve, thank you so much for this really uh, informative uh, discussion. I r- really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mike. And thanks, uh, of course, to our audience for listening to this episode of HIMSCAST. We encourage you to rate and review us. And if you like what you hear, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. Uh, thanks again, Steve. It was a great chat. Thanks, Mike.